And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I was in Washington this week for State of the Union coverage on CNN, and I thought the day after the speech that I'd go by and see Hakeem Jeffries, congressman from New York, who's now the new chairman of the House Democratic Caucus, the number five ranking Democrat in the House, and by all accounts, an up-and-comer there. He has an interesting personal story. We talked about that, about the speech, about the standoff over the wall in 2020. Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, so good to see you. Great to see you. I, you know, normally I start these conversations at the beginning and talk about your story, and, I, and yours is a great story, and I want to talk about it, but we're sitting here in the Rayburn building uh, in Washington a day after the State of the Union speech, so I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about that and what your reaction to the speech was. Well, the country deserves a uniter, and what we got from the president was a lot of being a divided. The country deserves facts. Instead, we got a lot of fiction. Uh, And the president had an opportunity post this midterm election where the American people voted for divided government, which means let's try to find common ground, focused on getting things done for everyday Americans, and spent a significant amount of his speech dividing the country and throwing red meat to his base particularly as it relates to doubling and tripling down on his xenophobic approach to immigration. So if he were here or one of his defenders were here, they'd say, look, he he had a he made an outreach to Democrats at the beginning, uh, you know, very overtly. He uh, spoke about issues like lowering drug costs, uh, child care, paid paid child leave, um, and uh, a number of other infrastructure, number of things that are also the priority of Democrats. Uh, so um, does that counter? Well, there were important concessions in the speech to the House Democratic for the People agenda. You know, as you know, David, we ran on lowering health care costs, protecting people no, you guys had great with success pre-existing with yeah. conditions. Yeah. Uh, dramatically reducing the high cost of prescription drugs, and we believe in it. And so the fact that the president mentioned it uh, provides an opportunity at least to try to find common ground. We also ran on the fact that we need a real infrastructure plan. We've proposed a trillion-dollar plan. We think it will create 16 million good-paying jobs focused on rebuilding our crumbling bridges, roads, tunnels, mass transportation system, and airports. If the president is willing to go beyond talking the talk, we will help him walk the walk because it's the right thing to do for the people. You know, look, um, one of the reasons you're in the position you're in is because you're, you're good at art- articulating the position uh, of the caucus and of the party, and that's part of your job. But be, let me just, on, on this issue of um, working with the president, I heard Stacey Abrams say last night, you know, we want him to, we don't want him to fail Um, I'm sure there were a lot of people out there who kind of smiled at that, just as they smiled at the president when he said, you know, we've got to get beyond the politics of retribution and all of that. I think the speaker uh, smiled a little at that point when she stood up and applauded him. Um, What are the odds of 
there being cooperation in this environment. You were be, we're going into an election, a presidential election cycle. You have all these investigations. He commented last night, you can't move forward if there are investigations and so on. I mean, what's your level of confidence that something actually can happen on these issues? Well, I'm cautiously optimistic. And my view on these things has always been uh, that we should work with the other side of the aisle when we can and oppose them when we must. And our view when we articulated some of the kitchen table pocketbook issues that we want to work on is that we understood there was at least a bipartisan possibility to getting things done. That was the beauty, uh, in my view, of what our candidates ran on and what we as House Democrats projected to the American people. For instance, on prescription drugs, it's important because the cost of prescription drugs are out of control. But we also knew, as we were articulating this position, that Donald Trump had said on the campaign trail and as president that this is a problem that we should also work on. Great. Here's our solution. We believe that we should give the federal government through Medicare the ability to negotiate uh, using its bulk price purchasing power, lower drug costs for the American people. The president stopped short of that yesterday. But that is the House Democratic position and a significant been, number been, of the American people. It's been an people. issue for years. Oh, that's course, been an issue yeah. for years. And yeah. we, have to, we have to get it done. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a possibility that we can try to work together with House Democrats leading on that. I'd also note, uh, as you know, and perhaps we can get into this in greater detail, but I want to note on the surface that we worked with this administration to pass significant criminal justice reform Yeah, and I know you were right in the middle of that. You were right in the middle of that. You know, interesting uh, thing uh, uh, on this uh, legislation that you passed, um, it wasn't warmly welcomed by some of your colleagues on the Democratic side. And, uh, in fact, some of your colleagues on the Democratic side urged Democrats to reject it. Why? Well, there was a view uh, by some in the House Democratic Caucus, although ultimately when we initially passed the bill the in First May, Step Act, First Step Act, 70 percent of House Democrats ultimately supported the bill. But there was a great deal of consternation because some in the advocate community said all or nothing. We took the position uh, in terms of those on the House Democratic side who were pushing this, which include uh, the then chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, Cedric Richmond, who did a tremendous job, as well as Karen Bass, who was on the Judiciary Committee then and is now the current chairperson, we all took the position that as we were negotiating a bill during the Obama administration in his final year or two, which was a very good bill, many of the same advocates said to us, let's wait until Hillary Clinton is president and Democrats control the United States Senate, we'll get a better bill. How yeah, did that how's work that out? working for you? Absolutely. Yeah. And so we said, never again, when you have the ability to help some of the most vulnerable Americans, should we not try to seize the opportunity. And ultimately, that's why we characterize the effort, which is going to help currently incarcerated individuals successfully transition into society and strikes a real blow at some of the unjust sentencing laws that were passed, as the first step act, not the second step, not the final step, the first step. Yeah, because it's limited in its scope. It's impactful, but limited to people in the federal system, a discrete number of people in a country where more than two million people uh, are incarcerated. But, you know, you touch on something that I 
faced when I was working in the White House uh, when we were de- when we were debating healthcare reform, and there was a body of thought, um, particularly among House Democrats, that boy, if you don't get a public option in these healthcare exchanges, we shouldn't pass the bill. It, it has to have that, and um, you know, I think about that. We couldn't get it. President wanted it, couldn't get it. It would be better today if we had it, without question. But um, what if what if he had taken that advice? What if he had said, you know what? Unless we get this, we're just not going to do it. I mean, there are 20 million people who have health care today who wouldn't have had it. And so, you know, there is this, there is a, there is among some a kind of all or nothing mentality. And you're not really popular, actually, with that that group of people. Uh, I, I saw Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, at her, people associated with her, I guess not her, hinted earlier in this year, maybe late last year, that maybe you would have a primary because you're considered uh, too much of an accommodationist. How do you how do you navigate these forces? Well, my approach has been that of a pragmatic progressive. Without question, anyone who objectively looks at the voting record can conclude that I have one of the 25 to 30 most progressive voting records in the United States Congress. A rating from the NAACP, A rating from the ACLU, A rating from the League of Conservation Voters. But I don't put a period there, I put a comma. If we're in the middle of divided government and we were all sent to Washington to get things done, we have an obligation to try to get things done. And as you so eloquently laid out, uh, President Obama and the team clearly made the right decision because the entire healthcare landscape is now changed. The people who have been helped have been helped tremendously. And I think equally as significant is the fact that it was once debatable, perhaps in 2008 or 2009, whether access to high quality, affordable health care is a right or a privilege. We were working that out. The leadership of the president settled that issue. Uh, And that's why we're in a position now as House Democrats to advance the ball on lowering health care costs. The president of the United States, 44, settled the issue on whether we should protect people with pre-existing conditions or not. That's why 45 comes before the House and says the same thing. Now, query whether he means it or not, but that's the new baseline. And so I've always been of the view that when you have an opportunity to change the debate and or to change public policy, seize it, as Dr. King would say, with the fierce urgency of now. What do you do uh, on this issue of Medicare for all, which is something that some of your new members have run on, some of your old members support, and has become uh, something that many of the presidential contenders who have gotten into the race are, uh, are embracing how, uh, how, how do you approach that? It's clear to me that what unites every member of the House Democratic Caucus, 235 voting members and two additional, uh, three additional delegates who are non-voting, we also have to work on that issue, uh, which is a disgrace. If you have people representing uh, the District of Columbia, they pay federal taxes mm-hmm. here in the District of Columbia, but it's taxation without representation. So that's a, a separate issue. But of the, of the 235 members of the House Democratic Caucus that have the opportunity right now to vote, the thing that unites all of us is that we all believe that we should achieve 
in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, a moment where every single American has universal access to good, high-quality, affordable health care. Now, the question is, how do we get from where we are right now, with the foundation having been laid for the Affordable Care Act, to where we need to go? Perhaps a march through a public option, ultimately to a system where every single American has access to health care. That's the uniting principle. Now, there's going to be a robust debate about how we get there, and that's a good debate and for us to have. And how fast we get there. And how fast we get there. How we pay for it. And how we pay for it, absolutely. These are all things that have to be worked through. And the issue of committees. private insurance and what the future of private insurance is, because um, you know Kamala Harris got into a little bit of a jam in a town hall meeting on CNN, where she was asked, "Would you do away with a private insurance uh, with private insurance?" And she said yes, and then ended up walking that back. Um, so this is a minefield. Yeah. You know, it seems to me, I, it, it, I mean, I, I think you're right that Democrats are united behind it. And actually, there's a majority in the country for it. But the devil is in the detail. It, it certainly is a minefield in terms of how we get from where we are to where we need to go. But the beautiful thing is that the House Democratic Caucus is united behind the starting point. And for us, the starting point is both strengthening the Affordable Care Act, protecting people with pre-existing conditions as part of that effort, and dramatically lowering the high cost of prescription drugs. That's the starting point. As we work through, how do we get to the end point? Um, the last thing uh, I want to ask you that's sort of topical is this whole issue of how we you know, resolve this impasse over border security. Um, as w you heard the president last night, we've gone through this, this shutdown, which... Uh, has infuriated a lot of people. Um, what is the end game here? Because it seems as if he needs to, he has pressures from his own base to produce something. Uh, and there are pressures among Democrats as well to resist the notion of a symbolic uh, wall. Uh, so where does, what's the, what's the end game that allows everybody to walk away and move on and move forward? Well, the appropriate end game, in my view, uh, would be let's just all take an evidence-based approach to strengthening the security of our border. And if that were to take place, the president can try to make the argument for a medieval border wall from sea to shining sea. I don't think that any expert in the United States of America would agree with that position, but he should feel free to make that position. Well, he's not really president. making that position anymore. He's sort of moved away from that. Yeah, he's never exactly called it medieval, but he's moved away from that. It, yeah. Uh, and it, it's, it's a good point, but he wavers back and forth because he got closer again to that position yesterday. Now, sometimes he says wall. Sometimes he says um, steel slats. Other times he says fencing. But he's not necessarily moving away from the position that he needs to fund using billions of dollars of taxpayer money his number one campaign applause line. That's problematic because that's in the realm of the political. And we are trying to deal with in the realm of how do we solve the border security situation uh, in a meaningful way. But, you know, um, the speaker called the wall immoral. Uh, I think most people would say if you need 
a wall in spots, if you need a fence in spots, if you need a barrier in spots as part of a, you know, a basket of, of uh, investments to try and secure the border, then that's not immoral, that's just necessary. Um, so is, is, are you guys like, uh, prepared to say, yes, there are places where barriers may be appropriate because the evidence, as you say, suggests that they are needed there? My interpretation of the speaker's remarks, who, by the way, has done a tremendous job yeah. leading the House Democratic Caucus yeah. in the context of these negotiations yeah. and beyond, yeah. uh, is that she's broadly referencing the immorality of the xenophobic behavior that sometimes comes out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, either at the very top or as a result of Steve Bannon, Steve Miller, Sebastian Gorka, or some of the other parade of villains that he's hired to work uh, out of the White House. So I think that the wall clearly for him has been a symbol of trying to appeal to xenophobia amongst some parts of the American electorate. Hopefully it's a very small part, but clearly he envisions that as central to his political strategy. Understood. And so I think that that is the context in which the speaker is referring to understand that. I understand but, that. But I do think that we have said that we in the past have supported enhanced fencing and barriers where appropriate, particularly around our legal ports of entry, which, as you know, are the areas where the overwhelming majority of drugs, I believe 90 uh, percent or so of the fentanyl and or heroin seized in this country come into our legal ports of entry. So we've supported that in the past. And I would expect that that's something enhanced fencing that we would continue to support moving forward where it makes sense in an evidence-based fashion. And that seems to me to create some room to arrive at a bipartisan negotiation. You're obviously compromise. privy to the negotiations that are going on. Are you, what's your level of confidence that there will be some sort of agreement? The good news is that, as it is often said, there are three types of members of Congress, Democrats, Republicans, and appropriators. <laughs> and right now you've got appropriators at the table who are used to striking bipartisan agreements. And I think Chairwoman Nita Lowy uh, has expressed cautious optimism that if left to their own devices— Meaning if the president will accept the, the, the deal. Well, if the president will accept the notion that as stewards of taxpayer dollars— that's consistent with our Article One responsibilities. We're not going to waste billions on what we are referring to as a medieval border wall, because that's a fifth century solution to a 21st century problem. If we're allowed to solve this with 21st century border security, which could involve some degree of enhanced fencing, but more importantly, additional investments in personnel, particularly customs personnel, additional investments in the Coast Guard, additional investments in immigration judges, which the president has supported, additional investments in the humanitarian and security situation in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, which the administration has supported, and additional investments in technology like sensor scanners, mm -hmm. drones, satellites. That's a lot to put on the table where there is real bipartisan agreement. He, in his language last night, I mean, he obviously struck all the notes that, uh, that uh, are divide, as you point out, and, and, and drive you guys crazy and uh, create a lot of controversy. But at the end, in his wind-up, 
he seemed to be a little less uh, prescriptive about what a solution needed to look like. Did you hear that? Did you, did you see an opening there? Well, there certainly was an opening in the context that, he, particularly related to infrastructure, uh, he didn't lay out a clear pathway as to how he thought we should move forward. But on this issue of border security, he, he seemed a little less prescriptive than he used to than than he has been. Well, in it, other words, did you did you see him paving the way to accepting something that allows for barriers to be uh, built, but did not. Uh, prescribe uh, specifically that here's this much money for barriers? It was certainly a better approach for him to take that he was less prescriptive in terms of how uh, he laid out what was necessary in terms of a physical Mm -hmm. barrier. I also think that the fact he did not explicitly threaten the declaration of a national emergency or explicitly, or even come close to implicitly threaten another reckless government shutdown, also may provide some space for a negotiated resolution uh, to be brought to the Democrats and Republicans in the entire body. We're uh, just to explain everybody. We're sitting in the congressman's office, and uh, those are alerts for members. Uh, it's so, not a fire alarm. Yes. Otherwise, we'd be out of here. <laughs> um, so let's let's talk about your story. I'm I'm done with my faux meet the press uh, uh, portion of this discussion. But uh, you come from New York. You come from Brooklyn. Uh, your uh, uh, your mother was a social worker. Your father a substance abuse counselor. Tell me a little bit about uh, growing up. In New York? Well, I grew up uh, in the Crown Heights neighborhood along with my younger brother. Uh, Came of age sort of in the midst of uh, the height of the crack cocaine era in the mid to late 80s, early 1990s. But it was a great place to live, a working class neighborhood, predominantly African-American and Caribbean-American, but also uh, lived in close proximity to a significant Orthodox Jewish community. And went to Midwood High School, uh, which in many ways, I believe, prepared me for representing the diverse constituencies that I serve right now. Because Midwood was sort of a gorgeous mosaic of people from all of the different neighborhoods uh, in Brooklyn, white, black, Latino, Asian. And it was just a great place to get some grounding in what the country and the world really were all about. Crown Heights uh, also became a, a, a symbol of uh, tension between uh, uh, blacks and Jews uh, in the in the early 90s um, with riots there. So that must also you must have been aware of those kinds of tensions. Yeah, that occurred as I was beginning my senior year. But it certainly was a, a moment in time where either the Crown Heights community or the city could have decided we're going to double and triple down on these tensions or we're going to work together to build bridges of unity with each other. And I'm thankful that everyone in the Crown Heights community who was really involved in leadership and at the community grassroots level decided that that was the moment to bring people together. Uh, And that's been great to see. 
And the city uh, is far more unified than the city that I remember growing up. Uh, you, uh, having had your own experiences in New York City, yes. will remember the Howard Beach incident. I do. Uh, which was sort of a racial flashpoint. I now represent a majority African-American, Caribbean-American district, a little over 50 percent. But I also represent the Italian-American and Irish-American community in Howard Beach. Now, if you would have told the people in Howard Beach in 1986 when that incident happened that one day they'd be represented by a congressman named Hakeem Jeffries and a president named Barack Obama, you would have never been able to convince them that you were a sane, rational individual. But when I was sworn in in uh, January of 2013, that was, in fact, the case. And I've got a great relationship with the constituents that I represent out there. You know, um one of the things that was, uh, just to go back for a second, one of the things that was, I thought, interesting about the president's speech last night was the amount of time he spent on Israel, the amount of time he spent on uh, the Holocaust. Um, and, you know, I try and step back and look at these things analytically, and it, it's, it struck me that he thinks that there's gold in those hills, that, that he can drive a wedge between Democrats and uh, uh, and. Uh, uh, and the Jewish community around these issues, part because you have new members who feel strongly, some, one Palestinian-American uh, member in particular, but, but others as well, uh, feel strongly about um, the plight of the Palestinians. And um, how, 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 does, how do Democrats navigate that issue? And how do you navigate it in your district? Well, in the district that I represent, uh, I serve more Russian-speaking Jewish immigrants from the former Soviet Union because I represent Brighton Beach and the Coney yeah, Island Peninsula right. than any other member of Congress in the country. I mean, Hakeem Jeffries, who knew? Yeah. Like, By the way, that, my grandmother lived in Seagate. And I represent Seagate, yes. as you know. Right off of Coney Island. Absolutely. And so the diversity that I represent is fantastic. In fact, I have the ninth most African-American district in the country, and the 14th most Jewish. And I'm proud of that fact. And I talk a lot when I go back home uh, about the fact that part of the district that I used to, that I serve now, used to be represented by Manny Seller. And Emmanuel Seller is someone who was very involved in the United States' recognition of the state of Israel in 1948 and encouraging Harry Truman to do it. Uh, and was a leading congressman for the Jewish community in the city and throughout the country, but also doesn't get credit for the fact that he was the chair of the House Judiciary Committee right. in 1964 and 1965 when the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act passed. Great history there. Also great history that Dr. King famously spoke uh, to the Jewish rabbinical community across the country and the world about the importance of dealing with the injustice of what was happening to Soviet Jews behind the Iron Curtain. Famously, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So we got a great history. Right. I think we have to keep that going. Now, on the, I, I can what speak about to on the, the current, contemporary the issue? The contemporary yeah. issue. So, but I think it's important to set the stage. No, I understand. Go but, ahead. But on the contemporary issue, the overwhelming majority of the House Democratic Caucus is and will remain strongly pro-Israel because the safety and security of Israel is tied so closely to the safety and security of the United States of America. And there's a sacred bond that exists for a whole host of reasons. And despite the effort of some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle to break that, 
I think we are determined to keep the issue of Israel bipartisan and above the fray. Now, that said, we do have some new members who take a different position than the majority of the House Democratic Caucus. And their positions will be aired, their positions will be debated. But I think at the end of the day, uh, the solid connection that we've had in Congress, Democrats and Republicans, to Israel will remain. What about the the treatment of the Palestinians and what's your level of concern about that? Well, I think the most important issue there is that we need not lip service, but a legitimate, authentic commitment to a lasting, robust two-state solution where you have Israel, safe and secure, living side by side with a prosperous Palestinian state that is demilitarized. That is an outcome uh, that we should not just support in terms of doesn't seem like it's talk, going in that direction. But we need to walk the walk. I mean, I think the president promised that this would be the ultimate deal, uh, but the way that he's approached it has not been uh, as if he wants to really solve this problem, and that's been unfortunate. You think uh, the Israelis are violating the human rights of? Palestinians? Well, I think there's an open question uh, in terms of some of the conduct that we've seen as it relates to whether the Israeli military has gone too far or not. In some instances, I'm personally of the view that Israel uh, lives in a very tough neighborhood. You're talking about Hamas and Gaza, dangerous situation in the Sinai, uh, Hezbollah to the Mm -hmm. north, chaos in Syria to the east, Iran with its nuclear ambition. Tough neighborhood. And having grown up in a tough neighborhood myself, I'm of the view that one of the things that people respect is strength. And so Israel needs to continue to be as strong as possible, but also obviously uh, make sure that the rights of peaceful Palestinian protesters are respected. And do you think that's happening now? I think it is happening uh, Mm -hmm. by and large, but I think that there's room for improvement amongst all of us in a very volatile situation. So obviously there's room for improvement in the Middle East. You are the uh, most famous Jeffries, but the second most famous Jeffries may have been your uncle, uh, Leonard Jeffries, who was a uh, professor of black studies at City College. And he actually treaded in these waters uh, because he... uh, uh, he gave a speech in which he said the uh, public school curriculum should be updated to include the role that rich Jews played in financing the slave trade and how uh, they and the Italian mafia controlled the movie industry to paint a brutal stereotype of black people. That was an enormous controversy in New York. Growing up in New York, you know, I'm aware of how something like this can become very uh, volatile. And he was removed as chairman of the Black Studies uh, department uh, because of that. How did that impact on you? You know, it's interesting because as that controversy was playing itself out, you know, I was in college. My brother had just started, and my father made a deliberate decision to try to shield us from that controversy because he was very concerned as to how it could just impact our well being, our focus, because it was an intense situation. I've said that there are many statements that he has made that I disagree with and that obviously are very different than the course that I've followed. Um, And I've sort of left it at that. 
you um, were you always uh, did it always uh, occur to you that you might want to run for office someday? I mean, when when did the political bug bite you? It's a great question. I mean, I think I started to get involved in the notion that I wanted to do something to advance the cause of the people that I grew up with in some meaningful way once I decided to go to law school. But I was unsure what exactly I wanted to do with my law degree. And then after spending a couple of years at Paul Weiss, learning the art and science of the law, you know, concluded that I wanted to use my law degree. You had an intermediate step, which was you clerked for a, a, a very, very... Um uh, colorful. Colorful judge, yes, Harold Bear in New York. Talk to me about him. Well, what was great about Judge Bear is that from the very beginning, I mean, he spent almost his entire career prior to ascending to the federal bench in public service. He was the head of the criminal division of the U.S. Attorney's Office, had done some work on police community relations in the late 60s, ultimately served on the Mullen Commission. A lot of that life experience informed his perspective, but he would always encourage his clerks including myself, uh, that there's no more noble calling than public service. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why I made the decision to go uh, to Paul Weiss when given the opportunity, because I knew I would get first-rate training, but it's also a firm throughout its history that's embraced the lawyer as public citizen. Bayer was a guy who enraged the left, enraged the right, he was a uh, civil libertarian of the sort of nth degree. Did he influence your thinking? Well, certainly uh, he, was a, he was an important figure in, in training me, one, to work hard. And during that clerkship, there was one singular rule that couldn't be broken. No clerk left until the judge left. Mm-hmm. And often the judge would work until 8, 9, or 10 which means we were working until 8, 9, or 10. It was good training for ultimately what took place at Paul Weiss, where if we got out at 10 p.m., it was an early night mm-hmm. for a young associate, uh, all of which you know I've brought to bear here in Congress to the great um, dismay of many of my staff uh, who do a tremendous job. But it was that work ethic, I think, that was communicated to me that if you want excellent work product, it takes time. You cannot snap your fingers and it appears out of thin air. So that was it. Not, not philosophically, you, you didn't take things away from, from his rulings on free speech. and. Well, philosophically, I think the most important thing that I took from my time with Judge Bear, stand up for the little guy. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you, you ran... So you you have you get credit for tenacity because you didn't uh, exactly run and win and move on from there. You had a couple of false starts, and you you challenged an incumbent in in uh, in Brooklyn, Roger Green, uh, who was a veteran assemblyman, older uh, person. I, there was a I was interested. I was reading. I actually was admiring of this. Uh, just as a craft thing, but in a debate, uh, you said about him, the issue in this race is not age. Yes, the assemblyman is older. I'm younger. It's not religion. Yes, the assemblyman is a practicing Muslim, and I grew up in the Cornerstone Baptist Church, and he and he walked out on you. Um, and uh, 
it 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 seemed like you were trying to corner him on these uh, issues, but he won. It was very interesting because it was sort of a stunning moment uh, that he walked out, and it was sort of the first political debate that I participated in at a high level, and Roger Green and I you know, get along tremendously right now, despite, despite our early races against each other. Uh, but it was clear that language matters and that you can intend something in the innocent, uh, most innocent way possible, but that it could be subject to being exploited by a political opponent. And Roger Green was nothing if he wasn't crafty, and he used that moment to try to suggest in some way that I was being intolerant uh, when he pretty much spent the whole campaign trying not to focus on the issues that I was raising uh, about the absence of, afford of affordable housing and the coming gentrification crisis that I thought uh, we needed to address. Uh, and it was, it was an important lesson uh, to be learned in the importance of the sensitivity of language that you use. And then you uh, ran again in 2002, um, a rematch, um, and uh, you didn't win that race either. Um, at what point do you say, you know, maybe I'm not cut out for this? You know, it was, it, it, it was a challenging moment having lost that second race, and there was an intervening situation because I, I lost the first race and we did reasonably well. We got over 40 percent of the vote, laid a foundation to be successful down the road uh, more than any other insurgent candidate had ever done against a Roger Green, who was a 20 year incumbent backed by the Brooklyn Democratic machine. Apparently, as a result of having run a reasonably strong race embraced by large parts of the community, uh, the lines were about to be drawn in advance of the 2002 race, and I'll never forget, I think it was on February 14th of 2002, I was told by a close friend of mine that the new lines had come out and my home had been cut out of the district by a block. Yeah, these things happen, you know. Apparently these things happen. <laughs> and I realized that, wow, Brooklyn politics was tough, but that move was gangster. Yeah. And... You know, I was able to still run because in the redistricting years, you know, you don't have to live in the district. But I lost and was only able to run in 2006 after having moved my family two blocks to get back into the district. You, you had a, a, a friend and an ally who was the a city council member uh, from your area who was actually assassinated. Uh, and you uh, talk about that. And at that point, you were thought maybe to be a successor to him. Yeah, that was a tough moment. That was in the summer of 2003 when then Councilman James E. Davis was actually assassinated uh, by a political rival at City Hall. And it was a tough moment for all of us. James uh, was sort of the first wave of an insurgent movement of young African-American reformers who were challenging the then Brooklyn political machine, and he was the first person to break through. And I had great affection for him. We had different styles to some degree, but he cared about the communities that he was privileged to represent. Upon 
that assassination, there were many people in the community, including close allies of Assemblyman Roger Green and others who said, it's your moment now to run for this seat and you can win it. The only issue was that I had said to James's mom that whatever she decided was the right thing to do in the immediate aftermath of that assassination, I'd support. And a few days after having that conversation, uh, Mrs. Davis said that she was going to support her youngest son, Jeffrey's ambitions to run. And so at that point, I could have made a sort of cold, calculated political decision, knowing that I would have had a lot of support from organized labor, community-based groups, elected officials, all of whom who had opposed me in my runs for the assembly against an incumbent who are now prepared to support me, but in the process would have had to break my word to James's mother. And I ultimately concluded that it was not the right thing to do. And I remember having a conversation with a high-level union activist at the time, uh, and I said to him, in response to him saying to me, this may be it, you may not get another opportunity. I said, well, if it says on my political tombstone that good guy may have had some potential to get some things done, but ultimately uh, proved to be too nice of a person to seize the opportunity that was presented to him, I can live with that. And ultimately, I declined to run. Interestingly enough, Tish James, who's now the attorney general, yes. uh, stepped forward. She won that election, as I figured she would, because of all the support and who she was as an individual. Uh, and we've gone on to work closely together, and now she's an important figure in the country as our attorney general. And you finally did get to the assembly after 2006, and you worked a lot on the stop and frisk issue uh, in New York, um, which was a, a you know an enduring and huge uh, debate. Um, talk a little bit about that. And well, you know, one of the things that I've tried to address during my career in public service is the notion that we should all live in a country where liberty and justice for all means something and equal protection under the law means something. At the time, there was an out-of-control stop-and-frisk program where hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers, mostly black and Latino, were being stopped, questioned, and frisked, then let go, but their information was being stored in a massive one million-plus name police database that was being used for constant surveillance and suspicion of people who the police department themselves said had done nothing wrong. And my view was, how can this be? And so I worked with uh, then State Senator Eric Adams uh, to carry legislation that prohibited the practice of the NYPD maintaining this electronic database on individual New Yorkers uh, whose civil liberties were being violated in our view, and we passed it in the House uh, and in the uh, Senate, and then, of course, were successfully able to convince the governor to sign it into law. And uh, I guess the argument for the database was that uh, it would help them uh, 
algorithmically or whatever to identify people who are likely to be uh, violent offenders in the future? Is that the argument that was made? That was the argument that was made by the then police commissioner, Ray Kelly. And so we asked him, produce the evidence of where the electronic database has been used to solve crimes and make the city of New York safer. And of the tens of thousands of major crimes that were conducted in a given year, I think, as I recall, he produced about 35 instances. And so we concluded that this was not an adequate trade-off when you are violating the civil liberties of hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers, many living in disadvantaged black and Latino communities. I come from Chicago where we have an enduring uh, crime and violence problem, a tragic one. Um, New York has maintained relatively uh, strong numbers uh, in terms of low levels of homicides, and so on, even after the, even after you uh, eliminated that database. That's correct. And we made that argument that this aggressive stop and frisk program uh, is unconstitutional and equally as significant, unworkable. And that there was no evidence that the deployment of it was actually making people safe. If anything, you were increasing suspicion between the police and the community And law enforcement will consistently say that their best asset is trust and communication from the communities that they are policing. Uh, And so once stop and frisk was declared unconstitutional and it's been dismantled under the current mayoral administration, crime hasn't gone up. It's continued to go down. And in fact, stop. Why is that? Well, I think uh, in many ways, there's just a better relationship between the police and the community. I think that there's a proactive emphasis on cooperation. I think the police are owed a tremendous amount of credit for focusing on the persistent criminals, which was what we were emphasizing, as opposed to criminalizing innocent people Mm -hmm. and so-called quality of life offenses through the broken windows theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, you can debate whether it was an appropriate strategy in the early 90s, when there were more than 2,000 homicides in the city of New York and different things were being tried. But I'll mention, and you are aware of this, that it was David Dinkins, uh, through his Safe Streets, Safe Cities legislation that he championed in Albany, that gave Bill Bratton, Giuliani's first police commissioner, with the personnel necessary to begin to get crime under control. I think he helped increase the force from 30,000 to 40,000. You mentioned uh, Dinkins, the, the, the only African-American to be mayor of New York. Your name always surfaces uh, relative to the mayoralty in New York. Now you're the number four person in the House, and it seems like you've made your decision. Is that fair to say that, that you see your future here and not there? Well, well number five, but who's counting? All right. Well, probably number four. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, great point. Yeah, it was actually number four in the minority, but then number five in the majority as we gained the speaker. I see. And so, um, you know, my view is that there's no greater job that I could have right now than serving the people of the 8th Congressional District for such a time as this. I've often said that there was no better time to be in Congress than during the four years where I was able to serve with Barack Obama as president. But in my view, there's no more important time to be in Congress than right now because the stakes are so high. 
the things that this administration is endeavoring to do in terms of eroding you know, our democratic republic require sort of a robust Article One House of Representatives, and it's just an honor to be part of that institution. You, uh, you, you you've used some uh, florid language about the president. Uh, you call him the Grand Wizard of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But then when you were asked, do you think he is a racist, you demurred. But is, doesn't that imply when you call someone that, I mean, isn't that de facto saying that they are a racist? Well, you know, I don't know uh, what's in Donald Trump's heart. I can't figure out what's in his head. The only thing that I can do is try Well, you to, imply that his head's in a hood, though. Well, the only thing that I can do is, is try to catalog his behavior. And we know that he has a long history of engaging in racially inflammatory behavior that goes all the way back to the 1970s uh, and, of course, includes the five years where he perpetrated the racist lie that Barack Obama was not born in the United States of America. That said, you know, I've concluded, listen, perhaps outside of the contours of Martin Luther King Day, where we should be able to have a candid conversation on race, we shouldn't look back. Let's look forward. I believe in the power of redemption. And hopefully, you know, the president will see the error of his ways in terms of some of the things that he's engaged in in the past uh, that have been questionable and divisive. And we can all come together moving forward. Why shouldn't we talk about race on other days? Shouldn't we talk about this uh, every day? I mean, I, you know, I, I was really moved. Brian Stevenson came to the Institute of Politics and he was stunningly impactful. But he talked very much about this unhealed legacy of our country, the extermination of millions of Native Americans, the enslavement of millions of African Africans uh, brought here against their will, um, and the, le- the, the enduring legacy of all that that we've never fully uh, confronted, but continues to be manipulated uh, in our politics. Don't we have to have that discussion every day and not just on one day? Well, certainly I think we should have a conversation about how we can reconcile as a nation and how we can move forward together. Dr. King, of course, famously said we may have come over on different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. That was true then. It's true right now. And I think through the lens of reconciliation, which is what Professor Stevenson, who I had the honor of taking his class when I was at NYU, uh, reminded us that must then. Have been something. It was amazing, uh, and continues to remind us now uh, that if we if we keep the focus on understanding the past, but how do we reconcile and understand each other and our perspectives in the present? It will help us come together in the future. Right. That seems like a that seems like a daily chore. Uh, uh, to me, you uh, you've you've risen very quickly in the House leadership. Number five, I just want to get it right. Um, you know, when you came to Congress, when I you don't want to step on Ben Ray Luhan's yes toes, yes, who's number four, yes. Um, that's why you've risen so quickly. Uh, so um, you ran in uh, for Congress in uh, in uh, 2012, and you ran. For, you started running against a a long-term incumbent, Ed 
towns, and I think we deserve better was the slogan that you ran under. And the implication was that he had served too long or that there needed to be fresh perspectives and that would be more uh, that that would be more appropriate to the time. Uh, a lot of those things were directed at the leadership now. You've got three leaders, Speaker Pelosi uh, and uh, Steny Hoyer and um, Jim Clyburn, who are all in their upper uh, 70s. And there's a lot of that. You heard a lot of that, you know, uh, after the election in November that we need we need to, to have change. I mean, how do you respond to that? Well, I strongly supported Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and Jim Clyburn because I felt like they had the right combination of ability and experience, starting at the top uh, with Nancy Pelosi, to guide the House Democratic Caucus, the Congress, and play a role in leading the country at this moment with such a divisive and at times reckless president sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. The good news is that in addition to those tremendous experienced leaders at the top, uh, a new generation of members of the House Democratic Caucus, such as Ben Ray Lujan and Sherry Bustos, our DCCC chair, and David Cicilline, uh, who's the chair of the House Democratic Policy and Communications Committee, and Catherine Clark, who's the vice chair of the House Democratic Caucus, uh, have emerged to take on meaningful leadership roles. So I think we have a great combination uh, going of experience and fresh new perspectives to help lead the House Democratic Caucus going forward. What is clear is that the wisdom of the House Democratic Caucus has been made clear in supporting Nancy Pelosi, who's gotten off to a tremendous start at a difficult yeah. moment in time. Look, I always say that Obama would not have achieved what he achieved but for Nancy Pelosi. And within these four walls of the Capitol, she is um, probably one of the historically effective uh, legislative leaders. Do you see uh, a transition down the line? And if so, are, are, do you want to be in part of that transition? Well, in my view, you always have to do the job that you currently have. And it's such an honor to serve in this position uh, that I'm going to work to be the best caucus chair that I can be, which means we have to continue to message with discipline. Uh, well, that you're doing. I have to give you credit for that. I try. <laughs> uh, but in part, it's because, David, you know, we, we, we concluded that in the Trump era, the only way to break through is if we communicate with simplicity and repetition, mm -hmm. a compelling, concise message that is delivered in the simplest way possible. And then we just have to repeat it over and over and over again. Otherwise, we're going to get overrun no, I, by the bully I, pulpit. I, I, I understand that. And I probably shouldn't have asked you the question about Pelosi and what comes next, because I know you're too smart to answer <laughs> answer that question. Um, talk to me about the presidential race and how that's going to impact on what happens here. Um, and whether whether you have a sense of the kind of candidate the the party needs. Well, I think 2020 will be a change moment, and so we're going to need a change candidate. Now, the interesting thing is that doesn't mean age, uh, that doesn't mean race, that doesn't mean gender, although those are all parts of how someone can authentically 
present to the American people that they represent change. Uh, but I think most importantly, what is going to be your vision for the country moving forward to take us out of the chaos, crisis, and confusion that has been the Trump presidency? To me, that's going to be the most important thing. This is an election, I think, that's like 2008, and a tremendous change candidate emerged. And of course, you obviously did a magnificent job captaining that ship in terms of that campaign. Uh, Barack Obama was a change candidate. In many ways, Bill Clinton in 92, change candidate. Jimmy Carter in 1976, change candidate. John F. Kennedy, 1960, after eight years of Eisenhower and Republican rule, change mm -hmm. candidate. I think we're at that moment, even though it's been four years, it feels like 8, 12, 16, or 20 under the Trump uh, administration because of just the intensity of the mess. And so I think the American people are going to be looking for a change candidate. And whoever best fits that bill will likely be successful. And how do you define that? What does a change candidate look like? What do they sound like? Well, you know, listen, in many ways, I think uh, you, ha you have the personal characteristics of an individual. And I mentioned that could be age, that could be gender, that can be race. Those are all things that may on the surface say to the electorate, I represent change. But I think more important than that is going to be the vision for taking America to a different place. But, you know, it's an interesting thing. Is that a different place in terms of policy or is it a different place in terms of kind of temperament? You know, I'm trying to figure this out myself because, um, my, you know, my view, I, I have this theory that animated my view that Obama could win in 2008, which is that at the end of two terms, uh, people tend to look for someone who's the remedy to the deficiencies of whoever is there, even if they're popular. Um, it, it is less clear uh, after one term, but as you say, this is an extraordinary circumstance, and Trump will define this election in a big way. What are the qualities, do you think, it is most important for a candidate to have the personal qualities? I mean, because is it about temperament and approach and how you deal with people, which you know some would view as a deficiency, in this president, or is it about is it more about policy moving forward and vision? Well, the president, you know, sort of as an individual, often acts like a bully, and I think that the contrast to that will be someone who projects a more reasonable, adult-like temperament. I think that's one of the reasons why Nancy Pelosi has done so well uh, in her early days as speaker because she is the adult in the room when they're having a conversation. I saw her quieting members in the chamber last night. It was kind of interesting to watch on TV when people got a little rambunctious. She put up a, a, a hand and things quieted down. She it put was, up a hand uh, and it was as if the seas parted. Uh, things quieted down. But she has that sort of intimate relationship with the caucus and increasingly now with the American people because they are looking for someone uh, who can project sort of an adult-like reasoned temperament. So I think that will be a necessary thing for the presidential candidate. I also think, whereas Donald Trump often doubles and triples down on fear and anxiety and xenophobia, uh, someone who can project a hopeful message. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan did it in his own way. Barack Obama did it famously by talking about hope and change. George W. Bush did it to some degree by talking about compassionate conservatism. conservatism. Yeah. And so I think someone 
in that mold of being inspirational uh, is going to be ultimately that type of forward-looking vision will be important. Yeah. So more, more about qualities of character and leadership uh, than any one particular issue. I think that's correct. Now, uh, we believe, uh, because of the work that we're going to do as House Democrats to keep the focus on yeah, yeah, I understand healthcare, that. You mentioned that. that healthcare will remain a defining issue. But it's uh, not likely the that these candidates are going to differ that much on it. It really does become who you are as a person and whether people feel comfortable uh, with you. And, um, you know, so the notion, it seems to me the notion that you need to be as strident a fighter as Donald Trump may sort of miss the mark a little bit uh, because I'm not sure people want a Democratic version of him. I think that's right. And it's often the case at the executive level in terms of elections, as you eloquently put it, that the American people look to go in a different direction. Whether they supported that president or not, supported that mayor or that governor or not, look to go in a different direction, look for quantities of something else uh, that were insufficient mm -hmm. in the prior executive. Mario Cuomo also you know, famously said campaigns are about poetry, poetry and yeah. governing is about prose. Right. So I think an inspirational candidate is going to have to be poetic as well. Well, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. I think we're going to see a lot more of you. Um, and uh, I think it'd be a smart strategy, frankly, to project you out there as a spokesperson for the party, because as you've shown here, you don't get cornered, you don't get trapped, you're, uh, and you articulate uh, these things very, very well. So it's, it's really a pleasure to be with you. It's an honor to be on, and thank you for all you've done for the country. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Thank you.